bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic. This is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Vratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. Today, I am joined by the Chief Policy Officer and General Counsel at Replica, Kieran Jan. Kieran was also the Chief Resilience Officer and a City Attorney for the City of Oakland. Kieran is here today to talk all about using data to improve infrastructure planning, the critical interdependencies in the built environment, and so much more. Kieran, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. You and I have known each other for many years, and I love the story of how we met, and I just want to make sure people know this. I want you to tell the story of how we met, but also why it matters, why we share this story with so many people. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was maybe 2007, 2008, we were in a city hall council meeting. It was late at night. I was sitting off to the dais available to answer any legal questions on my items. I was in the city attorney's office at the time, and I saw this woman whispering into the council president's ear, and I said, who is she? We look very similar, and there was no other people in the building that looked like us. So I remember walking over to you, we struck up a conversation, and we've been friends ever since. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity to not only serve in local government, but also to connect with like-minded people who care about how cities are shaped and formed. It's been amazing to watch all the things you've done since then. We've both changed roles and gone after our passions. Without going through your whole resume, tell us where you are now. So we met when you were an attorney, a city attorney for the city of Oakland, working in local government, I think on a whole variety of issues, whatever was needed, land use, technology, budgets, you name it. And tell us where you are now. Tell us what your role is now and what kind of work you're doing out in the world with infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. I like to kind of compare the work that I did as a city attorney in Oakland to working for these kind of urban technology startups, because we're all trying to push the envelope in a certain way. So being able to represent a progressive city like Oakland, there were a lot of issues that were kind of cases of first impression, whether it was open data policy or cannabis regulation, those types of things. Today, I work for a big data company called Replica that produces replicas of the built environment across land use, mobility, economic activity, as well as demographic data. So we can show near real time how people are moving, when they're moving, you know, what kind of mode of transportation they're using, but most importantly, why? And it's that question of why that also brings me back to the work that I did in city government, which is kind of building infrastructure for people. And I think that that's something that sometimes in the early days, I think of the civic technology movement, you know, it was all about the technology and not as much about the people. And now we're seeing that really flipped where it's about community center design, getting that input, understanding where baseline conditions are today and where we want to go. And I think, you know, policies like Justice 40 that were embedded into the recently passed infrastructure law kind of reflect this moment of time. So it's really exciting to be working for a company like Replica, helping kind of implement these ambitious infrastructure goals that our country has. Can you say a little bit more about Replica and your role and what you're all about? 
Absolutely. So I head up the legal and policy teams at Replica. And so we work a lot with state and local governments, as well as regional governments. I'd love to talk more about that because I think they are going to play a key player in implementing our ambitious infrastructure goals, but they're not really you know, well known. You don't know what a metropolitan planning organization may be, for example, but I think they are going to be the key to unlocking some of our climate and equity goals. Well, why don't we just stop there since you brought it up actually for our listeners. What's an MPO? Why does this matter? Get everybody in the know. So a metropolitan planning organization is really a joint powers authority that is set up to kind of cover a certain geography. So where I live in the Bay Area, we have something called the Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the Association of Bay Area Governments. They recently merged a few years ago. One was tasked with regional transportation planning, the other with regional housing. You could understand the complications when you have two different agencies (laughs) planning for those two separate issues. So they came together a few years ago and And their representative board members are electeds from around the Bay Area, and they come together to do things like regional housing needs assessments, thinking through what does a transportation plan to serve the Bay Area look like? And I know this is work that you did at SPUR very closely. When I was chief resilience officer, we had actually launched something called Resilient by Design, and that was looking at resilient challenges throughout the nine counties of the Bay Area. MTC was kind of our lead, the Bay Area Regional Collaborative team within MTC. And so, again, I think it just shows the power of regionalism when we're talking about how do you combat sea level rise? How do we think about getting people to work effectively and safely? You know, jurisdictions can sometimes be random. And so I think regionalism is a way to to get at that randomness. (laughs) This has been a hot topic for a long time, even though regions have stayed under the radar and the As we both know, the federal government still doesn't really recognize regions or how is it starting to through the infrastructure work. And I just came back from New York City where it's a massive region. It's actually three states. So what's happening with that? A lot of people live in a region, actually, and they associate with that more than a specific city or a state. And so how does the infrastructure money, the bill thinking funnel to regions now? So I would say there's some explicit calls to action through IIJA. I think the RAISE grants is one example of the way we're trying to think more regionally and getting, you know, multiple layers of government to come together and put these applications forward. I think the level of collaboration that's needed just to be successful on a grant application is just one example, I think, of where regionalism is becoming more important. You know, I will just say in California, there is something called the Regional Early Action Planning Program that is 2.0 now, and there's five state agencies that are involved. The Housing Community Development is a lead state agency, but they're also working, you know, with the Air Resources Board, and their mandate is to to actually give that funding to the four biggest metropolitan planning organizations in the state so they can then work with their member agencies, whether it be, you know, local transit agencies and the like, with this understanding, like, they are the ones that know the issues most intimately, right? And those agencies, in theory, are also the ones doing the community work and working with the local organizations that are on the ground. You don't really see that happening at the state level very successfully. So again, I think that's another example. And that funding is coming through the federal government 
to the state that's then pushing it down to these MPOs who are then, you know, supposed to spread that out. So I think it's still a work in progress, but I think there is momentum on both the funding and the governance side to implement this. Mm, That's so interesting. And then I just want to tie that back to a lot of work you've done around what you've called civic design or others and making government work better. That's been a big part of your roles as well. So can we bring that back? How are you now thinking you're outside of government, you work in the tech industry, I'm sure you still care about making government work better. And what is your current thinking on how to tackle that when we're trying to get all this money out and infrastructure built? Absolutely. And I think it's something that's guided my work, whether I was inside the public sector or working now for these technology startups that serve the public sector. Governance is like one of the most critical pieces of good civic design, right? We have the technology, we have the money, but how are we going to all work together to implement? And I think one of the things that I'm really most excited about is this conversation around policy and linking it to implementation work, right? I think historically, we've had these two very important areas sit and different sides of an organization. You can be thinking about like, what does a policymaker want to pass? But then what it looks like in practice from an implementation perspective is very different. An example, I was on another panel this week where we were talking about broadband. And there is this one dig policy that the California Department of Transportation, Caltrans, had implemented three years ago. So the idea is, is that if you're going to, you know, build a highway, you're going to lay fiber down so that you can actually increase your broadband capacity while you're also delivering these transportation projects. Well, that policy hasn't gone very far because the agency rightfully is tasked with building highways. They're not a broadband agency. So how do we kind of narrow that gap between what is a well-intentioned policy and how we actually implement it, I think is something that is also part of the civic design calculus. And so how do we get there? I think it's, you know, the internal kind of siloed systems that we've just grown up around. That is very much, I would say, kind of 20th century governance structures, right? There was a reason why the housing department built housing and, you know, the transportation department did what they did. And I think what we're seeing now from a 21st century governance perspective is this breaking down of siloed government and people working cross-sectorally and collaboratively. And that was a lot of the work that I got to do as chief resilience officer was kind of have this 30,000 foot view over government and say, okay, well, housing, you're actually doing economic resiliency work, right? That could support the human services agency. And let's have that conversation. I think that's also happening in the infrastructure world, right? And I think IJA and some of these other infrastructure programs are also recognizing this idea that you can have multi-benefit infrastructure, right? That roads are not just roads. They're also conduits for fiber to connect people to jobs or to educational opportunities. And again, so I think civic design in my mind is like, how are we serving the people who need government services the most? And then how are we kind of creating creating either the infrastructure or the programs and the policies to support all of that work. And it's still early days. You have a lot of human-centered designers actually in government. I think that the job descriptions have started to change, which is really exciting. I mean, 10 years ago, if you were talking about human-centered design or even systems thinking in government, you know, you were kind of met with like, oh, that's interesting. But now it's like becoming a parcel of the work that's happening from the federal state to the local level. Wow. Way to tie it all together. This is what I think you are exceptional at is seeing what's going on out there, what's trending, and then bringing it together through actual partnerships, through actual policy implementation. I'm really curious how being an attorney 
who actually can facilitate partnerships and agreements, how that skill set helps you play this role of creating new governance models or new programs. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people think of lawyers like they don't want to work with their city attorney offices because that's where programs go to either get stalled or die. And from my perspective, I was always the attorney that wanted to say yes, right? But how do we get to yes? And I think a lot of that is around how you're designing a certain policy. What are the underpinnings that you have to really be concerned about? So open data, for example, when we took that policy to council, I think it was like 2013, nobody was thinking about privacy back then. And that was an important issue. So being able to kind of see the different facets, I think, is one area that legal skills can come in handy. We were one of the first cities to actually write in a privacy policy into our open data. We had looked at, you know, other cities that had come before us doing this work. And of course, it was about, let's just get the data out there, right? Because we can build better products or serve more people if the data is there. But there's also now, as we learned the last several years, that privacy is also kind of an important piece of that policy in that, you know, in Oakland, I always say is like, it's always kind of ground zero for like the cutting edge issues of the day. But we learned that the hard way in Oakland when we were, staff was trying to bring a policy forward to do something with the ports on predictive crime. And, you know, we had the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation came out and what staff thought was going to be put through on consent calendar, we ended up having like 150 people show up to a city council meeting to talk about Big Brother. And this was years ago, but I think like that just underscores, right, why you have to be thinking about the different, like looking around the corners, I guess, of an issue and being able to see what's down the pike. So Oakland then, you know, stood up one of the first privacy commissions as well as a response to these proposed actions. So that's one thing. I think the other thing of being able to say yes is knowing kind of what lanes you have to stay in and where you can kind of, you know, maybe color outside the lines, if you will, like what is permissible there. And I think as a lawyer coming with this policy or business mindset, you're able to say, okay, well, we can't do X, right? Because we need to protect the city. It's a self-insured agency. So we have to take that seriously. But here's maybe some other areas where we can kind of push the envelope. And so I think that's the other part of being a city attorney is being able to kind of have those conversations. That's so interesting because I'm realizing listening to you how much any new infrastructure project today, probably except for some maybe routine maintenance or rehabilitation is going to require some kind of innovation or change from the past. We're just trying to do things better or you're doing things where something already exists or where there's already more policies and laws to work with. It's like legal innovation is just part of infrastructure now. Absolutely. And I think part of that gets expressed through the regulatory regime, you know, permits, I think is right. I know nobody wants to talk about permitting, but I think it's actually one of the sexiest. You heard it here first, everybody, because Karen always knows what's next, permits. (laughs) Permits are absolutely, to do successful IJA and IRA implementation, we're going to have to look at either how to streamline, you know, how to bring together different processes together under one umbrella, because, you know, time is of essence here. And I think every time you're starting a process, that can delay your inevitable goals. So I do think that you're absolutely right. Legal innovation is needed. I think the permitting processes from the local to the federal level need to be reconsidered. There is something called the Federal Permit steering council. I follow them on LinkedIn. I think they have like 10 followers, but it's just something (laughs) that I think we should all be paying attention to. Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, all we can do in some ways is make things a little bit faster and get more of it done, assuming we have the right ideas. How do we make it happen faster or do more of them? I think that speed is so important. I just saw, I was in New York also about a month ago and saw Straight Line Crazy, which is Ray Fiennes is playing Robert Moses. It's the adaptation oh. of The Power Wait, Broker. But who's Robert Moses for everyone, anyone who doesn't know? Oh, who wasn't he? He was somebody at some point who <laughs> held like two dozen positions in New York, but he was a planner, you know, and he did a lot of public works projects in New York City, around New York as well. And due process was something he didn't really care for that much. He was very gifted in how to label projects instead of like highways as parkways, try to get around rules and things like that. And One of the things that struck me was like in his day, the car was the innovation, right? And so we just need to build infrastructure faster to get these cars in and out of areas. So you saw a lot of the work that he did was tearing down communities to put these freeways in place or parkways, if you will. And I think there's a danger, right? So there's like a balance we have to do. Like we want to move fast, but we also have to be careful. Why are we moving fast? For whom, right? And a lot of the communities that he hurt were these low-income communities of color, Because they didn't have a voice in the process, there wasn't somebody saying, hey, I actually don't have a car or I get to work on the train and like, this is what I need. So as much as we want to also move fast and streamline processes, we also need to think about the intent behind what we're doing to ensure that we're continuing to serve everyone equitably without causing long-term damages. I think we're now seeing with some of the IJA money that's looking to bring down some of these freeways that were a direct result of some of his legacy. How do you do that? That sounds really impossible. How do you move faster and be more inclusive or more respectful of folks who haven't been part of the process? Is this possible? So I'd like to think it is. I think it's about getting out of how we've historically developed and delivered government, right? Which is like this like town hall meeting, or I think there's now, because of technology, we have different ways of gathering community input, which can help streamline that. Ensuring that those tools are available to everybody, I think are very important. So that's like a delivery mechanism. But then, you know, I think how are we kind of consuming that information and then reacting to it? I think actually today, a process you might say, okay, I need to have four public hearings before I can adopt this plan. You have these four public hearings, maybe four to six people show up at each public hearing, right? That's process. Is it well thought out process? Is it inclusive? So I think we actually, because of technology, have the ability to move faster, but also still be inclusive. And I think that may be another trend hopefully we can see in 2023 is people being really thoughtful about that. Now, granted, there are some limitations, right? Like you have to be able to post things to the front of city hall to say that you're about to take this action. Are there public squares that are digital now where those types of kind of requirements can still be met? And are those requirements still needed? That's the kind of conversation I think hopefully more enterprising electeds and their city attorneys are willing to have because the delivery of government is changing. I feel like you've put out a whole agenda for folks for 2023. If you weren't sure what to work on, just pick a few of these things. In terms of both civic design and participation, what's your take on who designs infrastructure? Who makes our built environment? What's your observation? What do you think needs to change there? I personally think that some people have not felt like they have the power to design the communities we live in, the sidewalks, the bridges, the buildings, the stop signs, you name it. Like, oh, that somebody else gets to do that or does that. I don't have a part in that. 
let alone large infrastructure like new tunnels, bridges, et cetera. Where does the next subway line go? What are you seeing with who designs these big projects? Yeah. And I think the real question is like, who's listening, right? And who has the power? I got to work very closely with several community organizations, many of them that had just so much wealth of knowledge about their lived experience in their neighborhood. You know, what happens when a king tide comes onto 7th Street or that type of thing that a lot of folks within the city government infrastructure, like, yes, we're tasked, we're charged with needing to deliver these projects. But who are we listening to? And how does that inform the ultimate design? And I think going back to the Robert Moses example, he didn't want to listen to everybody, right? So I think that's another piece that's changing today. And I think just going back to IJA, there is a pocket of money that is just focused to giving to nonprofit community-based organizations who are doing this work. Now the question becomes, what's the capacity? How are we going to monitor? How are we going to evaluate all of these things that may not have been possible before? But I think bringing those perspectives in addition to, you know, kind of the business of delivering infrastructure is how you have a greater voice. So definitely getting involved in these community organizations. Not everybody can go to their city council meeting that happens on a Tuesday evening because they either are working or they've got childcare or other responsibilities. How can you influence that? But then also never underestimate the power of writing your council member or mayor about this. Oh, that's such a great point. And then in terms of also imagination, who imagines the world around them, the future? I think about how provocative Black Panther was because it was the first time practically mainstream Hollywood showed a different depiction of the future that came from a completely different cultural lens. You know, you have three young girls, I have two young boys, and I always wonder what messaging we're giving them about their ability to design the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you brought up Black Panther because not many people would know that the reason why we have free breakfasts in a lot of school districts throughout America today is a direct result of their innovation and pushing the envelope and thinking about the power structures and how they showed up in those moments. There is a level of organizing here that I think needs to happen. I don't know if it is happening. I think we're seeing a lot of challenges in our communities that are still going unanswered, whether it's the homelessness epidemic that we've been experiencing now for the last several years. We're just coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic. It's still raging on, but what are the lessons learned there? How do we reach those you know, who aren't actually civically engaged in how I just talked about? Right. Is there a strategy that we need there and an ability to design communities for those who are mobility challenged? Right. Like, how are we thinking through all of these different perspectives? And to me, that's what I love going back to design. One of the things that we talked about was this parable of the blind men and the elephant. You ask 10 different blind men, what does an elephant look like? And they're each kind of touching a different part of the animal. And like, that's their truth. But if you put together these different pieces or different perspectives, you get to the whole elephant. And like that to me is kind of what government should be thinking about in terms of how it delivers. It can't just be for like a specific group of people. And I know that public servants are super well-intentioned in wanting to be able to deliver infrastructure in equitable ways. But how they design those processes, I think, is kind of the linchpin to ensure that the outcomes are what they intended. Karen, your work at Replica is looking at data, a lot of types of data to see what people are doing, how they're using their cities today. What have you learned about since the pandemic and what's coming up next for cities and how people are using their cities? 
Yeah, great question. I think there's a lot of conversation right now about central business districts. How do we return to pre-pandemic levels of activity? Replica was really excited to be a part of this new New York report that just came out this week, you know, which was launched by Mayor Eric Adams and Governor Hochul on making New York work for everyone. I don't like to use the term new normal, but in this kind of newly realized um, world that we're living in. So using data to create actionable strategies for the recovery and resilience of the city's commercial districts, you know, reimagining how and where people work, optimizing the mix and use of space in key employment centers to minimize office vacancies. You know, how do we bolster the tax base and create new job opportunities, right? So replica data was used for this report because we're able to supply weekly granular, near real-time data for mobility and consumer spending. So for this particular project, Replica's data on mode split, particularly walking and transit, as well as consumer spend for multiple categories like restaurants, bars, retail, they were able to kind of get a rich analysis of what is happening in their communities in 2019, so pre-pandemic, and 2021. So because we have data that goes back as far as 2019, the panel was able to kind of track recovery over time against this pre-pandemic baseline. And I think that's also an important part of this because cities might today take on different strategies that they would have done before COVID-19 hit. And so then how can they, you know, with data and then with some of the qualitative analysis, then kind of develop these actionable strategies that we're talking about. So I think that's a lot of the work that we're seeing, how our data is being used today. New York is just one example. Agencies in California have been asking us for this. Illinois is another area where this has been top of mind for their transportation department, as well as their MPOs and local agencies. And I think, you know, what we are also understanding is this idea of needing near just recent information, right? Like I think March 13th, 2020, I think when say every travel demand model (laughs) there kind of became obsolete on that day. So how are we being nimble in responding? Today, it's a pandemic. Tomorrow, it's a hurricane. I mean, you name it. You now have these regions that are being embattled with one, two, three crises at a time. So what's the role that data can play to inform how people are getting to where they need to go? What does economic recovery look like? What does learning in these spaces look like for our children? And so I think those are the types of questions a lot of these public agencies who were fine developing models that could last for five years or 10 years are now saying, well, actually, we can't afford to do that anymore. Uh, I hear you. I think it's such a great change that we have recent data and, and that agencies are able to actually use it because change is happening so fast. Does this mean that some of the projects that were planned with old models maybe are also obsolete, not just the modeling data of what the needs are in a region. Some of those, as we know, there are lots of transportation projects, for example, that have been around for a long time. They were invented literally decades ago. And some of the design even took place then because it takes us so long to fund and build projects and get them through permitting, et cetera. It's hard to do, I know, for people to revisit their babies, but is that happening So I think where we're seeing this kind of play out a little bit is around the supply chain conversations and how goods are actually getting to people. 
today. Pre-pandemic, you had big box retail stores, the like, then you had the upswing of, you know, e-commerce and now packages, you know, just being delivered to the porch. And so how are we rethinking those kind of logistics? I wonder if that's going to inform kind of land use patterns right in the downtown core. One of the things the New York report talks about is like, can we convert offices into apartment buildings, right? Or retail centers because of the nature of certain work changing. And so I do think it's a really important conversation to have because I do think that our land use patterns could be outdated. I think we need to have that conversation and we need to have the public debate about it and where people's needs are today. And at the end of the day, the built environment is here to serve us. And if it's not today, right, if you're seeing this epidemic of homelessness, something's broken. We've got to figure this out. So I do think it's time to have those conversations. And again, I think that you're seeing, especially with some of the electeds are coming to office, I'm thinking of like Mayor Wu in Boston and even Mayor Schaff in Oakland, like they're having those courageous conversations around how are we going to serve our communities when these systems seem to be a bit broken? Yeah, exactly. Acknowledging that it's just not working for folks, not just an epidemic of homelessness, but academics of loneliness, of substance abuse, of mental health, all of that, like the places we're in are not supporting well-being, just getting back to the basics. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it's interesting, like cities are charged with protecting public health, safety and welfare. Like that's literally what's written into our charters. And I think it's time to revisit, like, what does that actually mean? Mm hmm. Yeah. Are you then supportive of the idea of expanding what the word infrastructure means to include much more of that social infrastructure as we've been seeing in the conversation happening nationally? Absolutely. It is kind of part and parcel, right? I think the library is a great example of public infrastructure built, but also social infrastructure, right? It's where, you know, my kids learn to read or where somebody can go and work on a resume to try to apply for a job or check out books if they're thinking about a career change or whatnot. And there's so much programming that also happens at our public libraries that I think make it part and parcel of our communities. And so I do think we need to be thinking in those terms. You know, a senior center might also become an emergency shelter. And how are we kind of keeping these networks together actually in the face of a physical challenge, like say an earthquake or a hurricane? I mean, I think New Orleans is another example of where we saw a lot of that social infrastructure, right, disperse and not come back because we weren't thinking about physical infrastructure in that way. So how do we keep people networks together, I think is absolutely critical to ensuring we can bounce back from some of these shocks and stresses that are either happening today or will happen in the future. Wow. Yeah, that's such an incredible point. If we can meet needs more locally, maybe we don't need as much infrastructure in the scheme of things. You know, it's interesting, and this is something we studied in the resilience office. Ayushi Roy was somebody who worked with me, and we talked a lot about different cultures and the kind of social networks that they had. In the Indian community, there's something called baradhari. And it's like literally like just like your people. So, you know, when you are getting like Ohana in Hawaiian, there you go. Right. So if your kid's getting married or you need a business loan or whatever, you're relying on your baradhari to help you out. Right. And there's a system of accountability that's baked in because you all know each other and you're going to these social events together. And it's just a really beautiful way, I think, to think about community and how do we replicate that in systems like here in the United States, where, you know, it is a little bit more individualistic. But yet we know that as an individual, to be able to kind of survive the crises that we're talking about, you really need a community of folks 
Absolutely. Karen, I have two last questions for you that we've been asking all of our guests. First of all, working on these issues you're working on with infrastructure over such big geographies and timeframes is kind of inherently stressful, I think, and chaotic. How do you find order in this chaos? I don't know if I find it chaotic, but I like, okay, so let me, (laughs) how do I find the order in the chaos? Yeah. There's like the circular processes that need to happen to get to kind of like some of these like linear outputs, whether we're talking about broadband deployment, microgrids or highways being built or you name it. I would say having the relationships with the people who are actually influencing what's getting done and then doing the implementation work is probably one idea of order I can think of. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely about your leadership. That makes perfect sense to have access to be able to talk to the people who are working on it. I can see how that creates order. I think there's the order how you kind of show up in the work too, because it's hard. It's very hard work. It's tiring. It's very exhausting because there is the process that you need to wade through and things aren't always going to go the right way. And there's going to be political angles that you hadn't considered and how do you respond to things like that? And so I think also being able to take care of yourself. I don't think we talk about how public servants have been through so much in the last few years and how they take care of themselves and how we take care of them, I think is important. I think saying thank you (laughs) to your local public servants is very important. They're doing a lot. Yeah. Gratitude. So one last question before I let you go. Is there any major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that's on your bucket list to go and see one day? Oh, yes. Last year, it was announced that like the final leg of this like train had been completed to Singapore. I'm forgetting where it starts. But now it's making it possible over a 14-day timeline to travel from Portugal to Singapore via train. And that's what I would like to do. I just did a big train trip with our family this past summer. We took the girls through several different countries and we did it all by trains. And I just, the freedom that trains give you is just so special. So I'd love to do that. Oh, that sounds so exciting. Will you come with me? Yes. Yes. The full two weeks. (laughs) That sounds great. Karen, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your experiences, your insights with us today. Thank you, Retna. It's great to be here with you. I want to give a big thank you to Kieran Jan for being with us today. It's really amazing to see the work she's leading using data to improve infrastructure planning and delivery. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, I'm Ratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada. 